I'm so glad you could be with us this week before Thanksgiving. I hope that you've got special plans, whether you're alone or with family or with the people you choose to call family that are your friends. I hope it's a really blessed time for each and every one of you. You know, we don't often acknowledge that we have a, a virtual audience every morning on, uh, when we're having service on Facebook because we do Facebook Live. And I just want to welcome all the people who are watching online and just encourage you that if you're watching online, hit the like button so we can know you're in attendance, but also let us know where you're watching from. You know, we have people all across the U.S. that join in and around the world. I mean, we have friends in Kenya where we work for so many years that regularly watch our service on Sunday morning. Of course, it's Sunday night there. It's their Sunday night service. Uh, we, we're aware of a church in Pakistan and a church in Guatemala and different places. In fact, one new development in the new year, we built into our budget the ability to put subtitles uh, for Spanish um, translation for all of our messages because our influence has really grown in Latin America and this will expand the capacity to reach into a lot of Central, South America and the Caribbean as well as for those of you who have extended family. You know, one of the easiest ways to learn English is by either hearing it and then having subtitles so that you're actually hearing the English language spoken and then seeing what it means in Spanish. It can be a way to help your loved ones uh, to better learn the English language that are here in our country and are wanting to avail themselves of the opportunity to uh, learn English. So we're really happy you're here today. We're wrapping up our series on the gratitude challenge. I hope this has been as meaningful to you as it has been to us. We've talked about the gift of laughter. We've talked about the gift of friends, the gift of rest, and today, most appropriately, the gift of love. So I want to kind of camp out on a passage of Scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians 13. It's commonly known as the love chapter. I think it's the strongest, most powerful, and most profound thing the Apostle Paul ever penned. Studying it is kind of like taking a flower apart. You know, if, if you take a rose and you pull apart its petals, you'll have a greater understanding of the intricacy of the design of the rose, but when you're done, you kind of messed up the rose, right? You messed up the beauty of it. And I kind of feel that way about teaching from this chapter. There's something in it so beautiful and so poetic that I want to be careful that we don't get so busy taking it apart that we forget that this was written actually to help put our lives back together. That there's something very healing and something very restorative in 1 Corinthians 13 that speaks kind of to the tattered edges of our wounded souls. Now here at Spring Creek, we have a lot of friends of Bill W. Now that's a common phrase if you don't recognize it. It's a common way to refer to people in 12-step recovery. These are men and women who found through working the 12 steps, they found their sanity, they found sobriety, and they found a ton of healing from alcohol, from drugs, from sexual addiction, from relationship problems, you name it, there's a 12-step program that addresses it. And I love the 12 steps, and I love our friends of Bill W. who make Spring Creek the church that it is. Well, there's a story about Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith. He's commonly referred to as Dr. Bob. Uh, he was an American physician and a surgeon, but happened to be a co-founder of AA along with Bill W., well, in Dr. Bob's library was one of three books that he regularly liked to give to people new into the program. And this book is called The Greatest Thing in the World. Now, if you've been here for some time, about six and a half years ago, we 
ordered this book and had it available for everybody in the church. And a lot of people bought it. So we thought, well, we don't need as many on hand this time because so many people already have it. And come to find out, Saturday night we ran out of books. So we didn't order enough. People had not read it, did not have it. But I do want you to know, if you're in the program, this book reads a lot like the big book. So if you like the big book and the way it phrases things, this book is a really good companion to it. But it's all about 1 Corinthians 13. So one time, Dr. Bob had a friend call him to tell him, ask him what to do with a woman who was going through the DTs. You know, the DTs uh, is, is the detox from alcohol. And it can be real intense, can last for two or three days. And Dr. Bob said, give her medicine. But then he added this. He said, when she comes out of it and she decides she wants to be a different woman, get her Drummond's, the greatest thing in the world, tell her to read it through every day for 30 days and she'll be a different woman. Now, this book is written on the topic of 1 Corinthians 13. That's what Drummond's book is all about. It's about the love chapter. And like I say, it reads a lot like the big book. Uh, many of you know Bill W. always said that the 12-step is built on two principles, love and service. And so Drummond's book addresses the love side of 12-step recovery. So we don't have the physical copy. If you still would like one, you can go by the bookstore and Kathy is taking pre-orders. They're only five bucks a piece. But this book is so old, it's in the public domain. So on your message notes, there's a download link. Uh, Project Gutenberg, if you've never heard of it before, is actually making sure that a lot of books that have passed in the public domain are digitally available. So you can go there and we show you the link where you can download it. So you could read it on your phone or your computer. Or if you want, you can even print it out at home. So we're going to discover today as we camp out on 1 Corinthians 13, why love is still the greatest value in the spiritual life why it's the true mark of spiritual maturity, and why you and I need a lot more of it. One of the greatest mistakes I think people make when they read this chapter is divorcing it from the rest of the book. If you have not been in a church where a pastor actually preached or taught on this, the most likely place you heard this was at a wedding. Somebody reads 1 Corinthians 13. And it's not inappropriate to read it at a wedding. It's a beautiful chapter about love. But you need to know that's not the reason why Paul wrote this letter. This is not, that's not the point of 1 Corinthians 13. It's not given to young couples who are learning how to love each other well. This is a chapter that was written to a severely dysfunctional church. This is a church that had a lot of infighting. There was a lot of tension. And they were in particular, a lot of them were arguing about spiritual gifts. Because there were some believers in the Corinthian church who thought because they had certain gifts, that made them better than other believers. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand, you know, you can be a Christian and not speak in tongues. And you can be a Christian and not have the gift of prophecy. And you can be a Christian and not teach. But you can't be a Christian without the gift of love. And that's the point. So here we go, the five equations of love. In the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul does is he uses hyperbole to make a point. In other words, he's going to exaggerate. He's going to take everything to its logical extreme in order to make the point that love is preeminent over every other Christian activity or virtue. So here's the first one. Conspicuous spirituality minus love equals absolute zero. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But I have not love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, Paul leads off with the gift of tongues because this is the one gift 
the Corinthians most abused. There were certain Corinthian believers who thought that having this gift put them into a special class of Christian, not just different, but superior to their brothers and their sisters. So Paul says, even if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, in other words, if I move beyond the realm of human speech and I move to the language of the angels so that I could talk with them and they could talk with me and we could understand one another, but I still have no love in exercising that gift, I'm absolutely nothing. Now, regardless of what you might believe about the charismatic gifts, and there's a divergence of opinion about them in this room, the truth that Paul underscores is it's not gifting, it's love that identifies the children of God. If you want to know the people who are full of the Spirit, it's the people who are full of love, not people full of the gifts. The Bible never elevates gift as an evidence of fullness of the Spirit. Instead, the Bible says the evidence or the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, meekness, goodness. All of those qualities are a cluster of the fruit of love. So he's making the point that words without love are empty, even if they're the best words humans could speak, even if they're the words that an angel could speak. Here's the second thing. Limitless knowledge minus love equals absolute zero. Again, he writes, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but I have not love, I'm nothing. So Paul said, let's assume you knew every secret in the mind of God, all mysteries, all redemptive truth. Now that in and of itself is a big statement, right? But not only that, you, you knew every fact in the universe. You knew it better than Google. I mean, Google consulted you for the right answers. You, you knew your stuff that well. Imagine that you knew it all and you were right on every count. That's what he's saying. But if you knew the truth and you didn't have love, you'd still be nothing. Without love, it doesn't matter that you know all there is to know. Your knowledge is spiritually worthless. Third thing, extreme faith minus love equals absolute zero. He said, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Now, what Paul is talking about is the kind of faith that trusts God for great things. We know that all believers have faith. Without faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God. Without faith, we wouldn't know Jesus Christ. It takes faith to enter into the family of God. Everybody has faith. Not everybody has mountain-moving faith. Not everybody has spectacular faith. And so in this statement, he's saying, even if you had spectacular faith, but you're not growing in your love for God and other people, you're just kidding yourself. Fourth thing, unbounded generosity minus love equals absolute zero. Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor, but I have nothing, I gain nothing. So that means emptying the bank account, cashing out all the stocks and bonds, selling the house, the cars, the jewelry, all the electronic gadgets. It means taking everything else, the trinkets and all the stuff that you've accumulated over your many years, putting it all in a garage sale, selling everything except the clothes on your back. Then going down to the Salvation Army and say, let's feed every poor person in Dallas County today. Paul said, if you did all of that, but it's done without love in your heart, it's a worthless sacrifice. The final thing is if I give the ultimate sacrifice minus love, it's still absolute zero. He said, if I surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. 
Now, there's been a lot of discussion about what it means to surrender your body to the flames. Most people agree that this likely means martyrdom. So if I did the ultimate sacrifice, if you will, but in my heart, even that level of devotion has no value whatsoever. Without love, I'm a fake, I'm a phony, I'm not the person I think I am. So if I were to summarize these five qualities Paul just said, I can have the eloquence of an orator, the knowledge of a genius, the faith of a miracle worker, the generosity of a philanthropist, and the dedication of a martyr. Put them all together, but if I lack love, it doesn't count. It's inconsequential. It's worthless. When you want to make a point, sometimes you repeat it. And Paul makes the same point five times as he opens this chapter. All these Christian virtues that we admire, that we think are worthwhile, if they're done without love, they really don't matter. So he sets up from the get-go as love is what matters most. So after laying this challenge down, that love is superior to every other Christian virtue, to every other Christian behavior, what he's going to do is now is he's going to show us what love does. He's not going to define love. And by the way, you should know, nowhere in this entire book does the scripture ever define love. Did you know that? It doesn't give us a definition of love. What it does is it shows us what love is like. Because love is a demonstration. Love is a verb. Love is something you do. And so the Bible describes what love does, but it never defines love for us. And that's what this next point says. Love is something you do. So get this. This book, the book of Corinthians, is written to a city that's known as the city of love. Did you know that? And the reason it's known as the city of love is because of this building right here. This building is called the Temple of Aphrodite. It dominated the skyline of ancient Corinth. So Corinth was a port city. If you pulled into that port, the first thing you would see is up on the hill, the Temple of Aphrodite. At the Temple of Aphrodite, there were about a thousand priestesses inside and around that temple. And when I say priestess, hear the word prostitute because that's actually what they were. They taught that sex with them for a fee was the way to enlightenment, the way to ultimate truth, the way to nirvana, if you will. And so this place dominated Corinth, so much so that in the ancient world, the phrase to Corinthianize meant to have sex with a prostitute. So if you said, I'm going to Corinthianize, that's what you were saying. And not just that, if this is the place where every merchant marine, they wanted to pull into port to go to Corinth, it's where all the Roman garrisons wanted to take their leave for all the wrong reasons. So in the first century, a church was born in this sexually depraved city. And what we read and what we understand in the book of Corinthians is a lot of believers were having trouble breaking from their former lifestyle. They were letting culture define what love meant. Good thing we don't do that, right? We never looked at movies and culture and the lowest common denominator to define love. No, well, that's what they did. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to teach them love the way God sees and understands love. And like I say, Paul teaches us that love is a demonstration. It's not merely an inclination. So the verses I'm going to read to you in just a moment, they say like love is patient, love is kind, love is this, love is that. And when you hear that, as an English speaker, you hear a lot of adjectives. But in the original Greek, there are no adjectives in this paragraph. Every one of these words are verbs. Because like I say, love is something you do. And so Paul is going to show us what love does. He's describing actions. Here's the paragraph. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. If you want to know what love is, love can only be understood in terms of how it behaves. Now, let's face it. We've all been in a relationship at some point in our life with someone who said all the right words, but their behavior never lined behind it. They said, I love you. They could say all the right words. But it was kind of a crazy maker to be in relationship with this person because none of their behavior backed up that they really did love us. So love is a demonstration. It's not merely the inclination of your heart. And compassion is not just something you feel. Compassion is something you do. So what Paul does is he gives us 15 mini portraits of love, if you will. And what I want to do is I just want to walk through each of these qualities just so you understand what he's saying. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on any one, but it's important you see what love does. And the first thing is this, love is patient. Now, the Greek word here is macrothumio. And macrothumio is a compound word. Macro means long and thumos means heat, like thermal, or anger. So a person who's patient is a person who takes a long time to heat up. And what he's saying is, in terms of love, is love doesn't have a short fuse. Love doesn't lose its temper easily. It's not easily angered. Another quality, love is kind. Kind comes from the word for useful. And what it's saying is, is when I love someone, I do the things for them that need to be done. Remember how Jesus told us to love our enemies? He's not saying have warm, gushy feelings for them. You're probably going to struggle with that one, right? What he's saying is do right by them. Don't return evil for evil. Don't repay hatred for hatred. Instead, don't give them what they need. Don't give them what they deserve. Give them what they actually need. Love is kind. Third, love does not envy. Now, when you envy someone, you stew over someone else's success. You not only want what they have, you don't want them to have it. And so a person who is envious is a person When they see someone who's blessed, they can't enter into that blessing. But you see, love does that. Love enters into the blessings of others and is happy for them and the good things that have happened in their life. Here's something else. Love does not boast. If envy is wanting what other people have, boasting is about trying to make people want what you have. And Paul is saying the more loving you are, the less boasting you do. The greater your gifts, the less prone you are to brag. When I brag, I show that I'm actually spiritually immature and insecure. Something else, love is not proud. Pride says, I want everybody to know everything about me. And love says, I want to know everything there is to know about you. How about this? Love does not dishonor others. The word here is rude. There's some Christians that seem to take delight in being rude. They say, I just tell it like it is, right? You ever hear somebody say that? (laughs) Love doesn't tell it like it is. Love tells it like it could be. Also, love is not self-seeking. It's the opposite of self-seeking. It's not inwardly focused at all. Love is outwardly focused. It's also not easily angered. In other words, it's not given to emotional outbursts. It's not reactive. It doesn't have this easy uh, trigger in order to get them to be somebody that they're not in the moment. It also keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, it doesn't have a ledger. This is actually a bookkeeping term. I don't keep a a running total in my mind of how many times you've hurt me and when it was to be able to recall at the second you do something even remotely like that. I don't do that because love doesn't do that, right? And love does not delight in evil. 
You say, well, certainly no Christian would ever do this. Well, of course they do. What's gossip? It's taking secret delight in sharing the failures of others, especially people that you're not fond of. You see, I like to share the failures of other people because then I feel superior to them. Instead, what love does is this, it rejoices in the truth. Understand, you never divorce love and truth. Love and truth go together like hand and glove. Love is the kind of thing that takes no joy in the failure of others, but always rejoices when the truth went out. When truth and justice prevail, love is most happy. This is why also love protects. This is the Greek word stego, which is the word for roof. In other words, love is a covering. It protects the people it love. It does not broadcast bad news. And listen to this, love always trusts. It wants to believe the best in others. Now, please understand, it sees the wrong. It sees the weakness. Love is not blind. But it also doesn't go through life cynical, you know, always suspecting, always suspicious, waiting for that other shoe to drop. Love believes the best. And also love always hopes. Love take, refuses to take failure as final or fatal. It always believes in the possibility of change, that someone can repent, that someone can be transformed. Then finally, love perseveres. And persevere is a military term. It means to stand your position, to hold your position at all costs. And this is what love does. Love takes fast hold to people. It doesn't give up easily. It doesn't die easily. It will live in the face of rejection, and it will die caring. Now, after I've just described love the way Paul just described love in terms of what it does, let's get down to how we actually live. If there's any place that you've ever been hurt in your life, it's love, isn't it? Amen. It's when you're vulnerable and you put yourself out there and the defenses really came down with somebody you thought you could trust and they took what was precious and priceless and they stomped all over it. And you feel hurt and you feel rejected. And you feel like they didn't appreciate who you are and what you did for them and how you were being loving toward them and you did not receive in kind from that person. It makes us vulnerable and we don't want to be vulnerable anymore, do we? Once we've been hurt like that, we want to build some walls, some walls that you're going to have to make a real effort to get over in order to get next to me again because I'm not putting myself through that. So, when I hear Paul describe what love actually is and how it truly behaves, I have to say, it's not just difficult to love this way, it's impossible. You see, these are the benchmarks of love the way God loves. This is how God loves us. Now, we don't like to compare the way we love with how God loves. I'd rather compare how I love with how my parents love me or how my spouse loved me, or how my ex loved me, or, or how this person that I trusted as a best friend rejected me and betrayed me. I want to compare my love to them, because then I look really good. You know, I, I look better than them, because they really hurt me, and they're scoundrels, and everybody knows it, because I told them, right? I mean, it, it's just, I don't want to compare my love to God. But what Paul is describing is perfect love. He is describing God's love. In fact, we're going to put this verse up here, and we're going to take the word love out of the verse, and we're going to read the name Jesus instead. Listen to it. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Jesus does not demand his own way. Jesus is not irritable. And Jesus keeps no record of when he's been wrong. 
Jesus is never glad about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Jesus never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. This is the perfect description of Christ. He fulfills every single quality I've just described to you. There's no question, it's perfect love. It's the kind of love God has for us. But while we still have this verse up on the screen, I want you to dare to put your name in the blank spot. I want you to, uh, to show you what it's like, I'm going to put my name in there and read it out loud, okay? But I'm vulnerable here, so no laughing when I do this. I, I, I want to read it, but I want you to read your name under your breath. Read it in your mind. Keith is patient and kind. Keith is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Keith does not demand his own way when he's been wronged. Keith is never glad about injustice, but rejoices when the truth went out. Keith never gives up, never loses faith is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. When I put my name in there, it sounds like a big old lie. I, I, I really feel like the biggest hypocrite on earth having just read that to the entire congregation. But here's the deal. I want it to be true of me. I do. I, I want that to be true of me. And if I want it to be true of me, and if I want to love people the way Jesus loves me, then I'm going to need a lot more Jesus in my life. That's what I need. I need a lot more of his love because only his love can take my badly wounded heart and cause me to approach life in a different way, in a healing kind of way. Because my wounded heart, when somebody wounds me, I want to see him get wounded back. I want them to hurt. I want them to suffer the way they made me suffer. But if I really believe that love is the greatest thing in the world and only love has set my own life free, then when somebody wounds me, I don't pray, get what they deserve. I pray, God, give them what they need. Help them to meet you and encounter your love the way I have so that they can be set free from this part of them that feels it's okay to hurt people in the way they have. God, help them to experience your love. It's the only power to set them free. You see, in the moment I'm hurt, I show what I really believe works in people's life. I either want something bad for them or I want what Jesus gave for me. And that shows the distance of healing that God has to do in all of our lives. Now, sometimes the way we go about spiritual transformation pretty much guarantees we're going to get stuck spinning our wheels and not moving forward. And it happens in a chapter like this. So I'm going to give you an example with just one quality, and it's the quality, love is not rude. So some of us, we read that, but what we hear in our minds is thou shalt not be rude. We hear this as a commandment. And when you hear it as a commandment, this is what you do. When you, when you are successful at not being rude, you feel really good about yourself because you, I'm keeping the commandment. And if you are rude with somebody, you think, oh, darn it. You know, I, I was rude. I, I, I disobeyed the commandment. And if I believe it's a commandment, you know what? I start noticing other people when they're rude. And I think, they're not even trying not to be rude, Right? And I judge him in that moment because I'm treating it as a commandment and that approach misses the point by a mile. Paul is not saying that you and I need to try hard to avoid being rude. His point is we're called to live our life in love. And if you're living your life in the love of God, you won't be rude. On the other hand, if you invent a hundred rules around not being rude, 
every bit of love is going to evaporate out of your life. My point is this. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a list of do's and don'ts. Instead, it's a description of what it means to live your life in the love of Jesus Christ. So when the Bible says love is not rude, Paul is giving us a red flag to let us know when we're living in the love of God and when we're not. Does that make sense? This is not a new commandment. It's not a new set of laws. These are the flags to let you know when is God doing something in your life. So it's not rules to strive for. These are evidences that Christ is having his way in your heart. This is what grace looks like when it transforms your soul. By the way, you should know Corinth, the city of love, that temple up on the hillside, it was eventually converted into a Christian church. So real love won the day in Corinth. And the kind of love that gives love a bad name, it lost. So there's one more point that Paul makes, and it's this. Love never outlives its usefulness. And that's the way he begins this. The first sentence in the next section, he says, love never fails. And literally, it's love doesn't fall to the ground like a leaf and dies. It never withers. It never outlives its usefulness. So love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. And where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. But where we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So love never outlives its usefulness. Love never dies. Why does love never die? Because this next verse, God is love. Love's never going to go away because God himself is love. Love is as eternal as God is. So love is going to be ours for all eternity. Love is the one quality you get the starter pack in this life and you're going to perfect throughout all of eternity. You're learning how to love. It's the one thing that lasts. And in particular, what Paul says is where there's prophecies, they're going to cease. And where there's tongues, they're going to be stilled. And where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. Remember, he's writing to a church who are all wearing their spiritual gifts as badges of superiority. And so he wants them to know, listen, you may think that having the gift of tongues makes you special. I'm here to tell you, one day that gift goes away. And so does teaching. So does preaching. So does mercy. So does serving. It doesn't matter what the gift is. The gifts are for this life. And so you have inverted your value system, he's telling the Corinthians. You are valuing what's temporary over what's eternal. What's eternal is love. What matters is love. And you've let this thing that defines this life become more important than the one value that defines all of life from the beginning of time to the end. So all of us know that the greater something is, the longer it lasts. Paul makes really clear the spiritual gifts won't last forever. They're temporary for this time alone. There's coming a time we won't need to be encouraged. We won't need to be praying for one another. We will have everything we need because we'll see Christ as he is and we'll be like him. But then he adds this, last phrase, last, last sentence in the chapter. In this life, we have three lasting qualities, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of them is love. So love is not only greater than the spiritual gifts. Faith and hope, which are real essential to this life. You don't know Jesus if you don't have faith. God says it's impossible to please me without faith. Faith is really important in the new birth. But faith is about believing what I've not yet seen. But in eternity with God, I will see what I've not yet seen. I don't need faith anymore in the presence of God. Hope's the same way. You know, in this life, I'm always hoping for better days. But in heaven, I'm not hoping for better days. Better days are mine every day. So there's no need for hope. 
So two things that are absolutely essential to this life, that I continue with hope and with faith, those things go away in the presence of God. They're not necessary anymore. But love, love goes on. Love continues. Love outlasts this life. I say this in nearly every funeral now. I, I, I remind people, you know, you lo love your loved one and you think that that love is gone now. It's not. You're still loving them and they're still loving you. Because love is the one thing that lasts. Now, th th there may be a space that, that is set between us right now, but, but that love is not eclipsed. In fact, your loved one that's gone on is loving you more perfectly than they've ever loved you before. Because now, all the things that got in the way of that love are no longer in the way. And all the selfishness and the brokenness and all the ways they imperfectly love, we're not just healed in our bodies, we're healed in our soul. We come to understand in the presence of real love what we were made to become. And we become that. So love goes on. Love is the one thing that always lasts. So where I want to wrap up is, is where Drummond did, where I started this message. That book, The Greatest Thing in the World, which is about 1 Corinthians 13, he begins to think about when God audits a life, what does he look for? What is God looking for at the end of time when we stand before him? What is he going to look for? So Drummond starts talking about Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is the place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the end judgment. It's the most extensive teaching he ever does around what will happen at the end of time. And you know this passage, though you may not have associated with judgment. He says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. I was a stranger, you took me in. All these conditions of vulnerability. And what he says is there's coming a time, at the end of time, when the sheep my sheep, my kids, are separated from the goats. The sheep are separated from the goats. And he said, my sheep, my kids, they will have cared for the vulnerable. They will love them. And the goats won't. That's what he said. I mean, it's real clear. This is what he, he's looking for evidence of love, right? Where's the, where's the love? Where, where has my love touched you so much that the vulnerable people of this world got inside of here and you realized they were family to you too and you loved them and you cared for them in fact let me let drummond summarize it he says this sins of commission that is the things i've intentionally done are not even referred to so read in matthew 25 jesus doesn't have this whole thing of you know i was always told at the end of time there's going to be this big movie screen that's going to replay all of your sins in front of everybody as we just kind of wilt in humiliation of i didn't even know anybody saw that right Jesus makes no reference like that at all at the end judgment. So sins of commission, the things I've intentionally done, they're not even referred to. But sins of omission, what I failed to, those are the things we're judged by. And he says, Drummond says, it could not be otherwise. For the withholding of love is the negation of the Spirit of Christ. The proof that we never knew him. It means that he inspired nothing in all of our lives that we were not near enough him to be seized with the spell of his compassion for the world. It means that I lived for myself. I thought for myself, for myself and none beside, just as if Jesus had never lived, as if he'd never died. What he's saying is, is love is a demonstration. We, there's evidence of love. There's always evidence of love. Love is not just words. Love is something I do. 
I love this church that refuses to be defined by the walls that line our building. That our heart is big enough to embrace a community that is often hurting. And a world that is desperate to know God's love. I'm so grateful that there are countless families in this room right now who refuse to let the walls of their house define who they care about, who they love, who they will share and care of their abundance. We're entering into a beautiful time of the year. This week is Thanksgiving. I hope it's a really blessed one for you all. We all thank God. We pause. We say, thank you, God, for the abundance of your gift, for laughter, for friends, for rest, and for love. We thank you, God, that your love is what changed our lives. And then we enter into a time of giving. And so here's what I want to do. I, I just want to challenge you as we're wrapping up this time of the year that, that you would think beyond your walls and that you would just kind of think in terms of one more place at the table or one more spot around the tree, that we have brothers and sisters who may not be in our living room, but they're still very much a part of our family. And we love them. And we want the hungry fed. And we want the thirsty to have their thirst satiated. And the naked we want clothed. And the prisoner we want to know not alone. And the stranger we want to always welcome in. Jesus said, my kids do this when others won't. And as one of God's kids, I just want to say, I want to make that a priority this year. And so in the same way that you might give to a family member, that you would just think in terms of one more place around the table... And I'm going to give to this person who I don't know, but I will know in heaven. I'll know them in heaven one day. And maybe they're sitting in a slum in Badagri or in a mountain village of La Violeta, Ecuador. But they're going to know that there's a people on this side of the globe that love them incredibly. And we're going to send that message. Because you know what? That's what love would do. That's what love does. And that's what Jesus is looking for. Hearts have been changed by love. And you know what? We're also going to celebrate right at the end of the service, just a brief time of communion. Love is a demonstration. And when Jesus went to the cross, he showed us what real love is and what real love does. Real love lays its life down for others. And we're going to celebrate the greatest gift that we've all ever received. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we've had this time together to gather around your word, around your truth. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 13. Thank you for the challenge it is to our soul that we're given a glimpse of what the love of God actually looks like. God, I know I come up short. I know that I fall short of your glorious standard, but I also know the answer is not in trying harder. The answer is to be saturated, to experience, and to live in the love of Christ. And as his love takes deeper and deeper root in my soul, I will begin to live in such a way as I reflect your perfect love. So God, I pray that this will be a very blessed time for all the families here and for the families outside of this place that they might know that this is a people who love you and love them. In Jesus' name, amen.